As, as we begin, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you turn in there, we're going to really pick it up of verse 13 and go through 21. It'll be the passage I'll be talking about uh, today. And oftentimes I meet with people and they'll sit right across the table from me and, and there's an element of, well, you're a pastor and so there's a little bit of, you know, I'm sorry in their voice or I really need to try harder, I really need to do better. And they're like, I just, I, I want to grow, but, and, and then, you know, just fill in the blank. And I really, I, I want to read the Bible more, but, ah, just, you know, this happens, that happens. And, and I, it's hard for me to, like, give them the magic pill. You know what I mean? It's like, I can't say, take this pill every day, and you will grow in your spiritual life. Take this pill every day, and you'll even want to grow more in your spiritual life. And the reason is because I don't think people really believe me when I tell them the answer to the question. The answer that they're really looking for. I mean, they're like, I, I, I'm struggling with this and I don't want to struggle with it anymore. Or, I, you know, I, I want to be better to my wife. Or I want to be a better parent to my kids. Or I, I, I want to be a better Christian. The Peter, again, echoes the sentiments of the whole Bible in this passage when he answers that question. And the answer, again, I, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you, okay? I'm going to do the old Puritan way. Uh, the answer is the gospel. And the answer is believing that God is really better than anything of this world that you could look to for happiness, for enjoyment, for peace. God really is that good. And if you would take your eyes and focus them on Jesus, you will, over time, more and more and more and more, realize how, how awesome he is. Over time, you'll realize you would rather open the Bible than watch Netflix. Over time, you would realize you'd rather spend time with Jesus um, than other people, because he's that much better. Over time, he will have an effect on your life that you'll, you could never get trying to work harder, trying to do more or do better. So today we're going to find out that if we set our hope fully on the, the grace that is to be revealed from Jesus Christ, some future grace, it's going to have an amazing impact on our life. Today we're going to find out that if we will fear God more than we fear man, it's going to have an amazing impact on our life. Today we're going to realize that if we will just surrender our all to the creator of the universe, that's the answer to our problems. That's the answer to our, our whatever struggle we're finding in our life. The gospel is the answer, and it comes through surrendering our all to him. So let's read um, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in... In verse 13, right before I read, I, I just want to, I'm not going to recap the sermon from last week, but, but basically the passage leading up to this is talking about how amazing God is that he has provided salvation for us and a salvation that comes with an inheritance that is amazing. And, it, and it's a hope that we'll talk about in a minute that's not a hope like I hope my team wins today, but it is a, a 
a real expectation of something that's actually going to happen. And it's a living hope that's alive and can be alive at working our lives. And so as we place our hope in that, and he goes on to say how this is something that the prophets were looking into, and they would prophesy about it, and they, they were waiting. They couldn't wait for it to happen, but it didn't happen in their life. But it has happened in our generation, Peter's talking about here. The first century, this has happened. Jesus is the answer to everything, and he has been revealed. And we now know that he is the Messiah, the anointed one. So when you see the word Christ in your Bible, that's the same word for Messiah, and it means anointed one. He is the one that was anointed before the foundation of the world to be the one to pay the price for our sin. And his blood was shed. So that's where it leads up to verse 13. Peter says, therefore, because of all this, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last, last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So our first point is set your hope in future grace. Set your hope in future grace. In this passage, there's two big commands, of, and, and those are my two big points. And if you look at, at verse 13, perhaps your, your translation says, uh, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to diss the scholars who translate that for you, but that's not an, that's not an imperative verb. Um, it's not a command to prepare your minds. In fact, it's very interesting. He uses a participle, which is like a description verb, to talk about what the real command is. The real command is set your hope fully or perfectly in the grace that is to be revealed. So the command from Scripture is to set your hope fully. But he uses these participles, preparing your minds, being sober-minded. And you know what those are? Those aren't commands. Those are like, no, duh. Aren't you preparing your mind for action? It's like expected that you are living in a hostile world to Christianity. You are living in a world that will trample all over you for what you believe and what you stand for. You are not living in your homeland. America is not our homeland. The places where, which are described in the first couple of verses of 1 Peter, that was not their homeland. Our homeland is heaven. And that's where we can relax and chill out and worship God face to face. But right now, we're in a hostile environment. So it's assumed, of course you're preparing your minds for action, right? Of course you've spent time with God today, right? Of course you're spending time with God every day. 
So I'm not here to tell you, you need to open your Bible every day. I'm assuming that you are because of the world we live in. We cannot make it without spending time with God. I'm assuming you're preparing your mind. And I'm assuming you're being sober-minded. And what does that mean? That means that you're in control of your mind. Paul said in Colossians to take every thought captive to Christ. So a new thought enters your mind. Should I vote for this guy or for this lady? I'm going to take that thought captive to Christ. I'm going to say, Jesus, as an exile in a foreign land, what do you want me to do? Right? This is a new song that everybody's talking about. Okay, let me take that thought captive. Should I listen to this or not? God, what do you have for me to do today? Take every thought captive. He's just assuming you're preparing your mind and you're, taking, you're, you're keeping your mind sober so you're ready to action. And, and, it, and he uses the phrase that gird up the loins of your mind. You guys have probably heard this before, but I mean, the, walking around in the robes, you know, the Bible times, they would gird up their loins so they could take off running. And it was like they would tuck in the long part so it was like they had a mini skirt on so they could, you know, for action. And he's using that analogy to talk about your mind. Is your mind ready for action? Peter's assuming that it is because you are in a hostile environment. Don't for one second think you can turn on the TV or turn on the radio or go to work or be out there in the world or read the newspaper, whatever it is, open open your smartphone and say, oh, well, I'm just going to turn off my mind for a little bit. No, Peter's assuming that your mind is on and you're ready no matter what's coming at you, where it's coming from. And Paul's telling us to take those thoughts captive to Christ and ask Jesus what he wants us to do with it. So the command is not to prepare your mind or to be sober-minded. That's assumed. You're doing it. And those are expectations that go right in line with what he is telling us to do. That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I've called that setting your hope in future grace. So, first of all, it's real easy to talk about the future grace of God. Man, when he comes back, it's going to be awesome. We can look at Revelation. He's not coming back as this cute little baby in a manger. He's coming out, and he's opening his mouth, and the sword's coming out, and he's just wiping out his enemies. He's got these big tattoos on his thighs and everything, and he's, like, riding a big old white horse. And, like, that is an amazing image. And that's part of what he's talking about here. But I don't want you to say, well... I'm just trying to survive, and then one day I'll be with Jesus in heaven. That's not what Peter's talking about here. Yes, set your, set your hope fully in the grace that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And whether it's today, tomorrow, next week, or 100 years from now, only God knows. We don't know. Only God knows. But I'm hoping for that day. I cannot wait for that day. Cannot wait to see Jesus face to face. But future grace also implies... 20 minutes from now implies this week implies this month this coming year and a lot of times i've found christians especially was sitting across from me and they're like man i just i want to i want to learn more i want to study the bible more but i just i don't know and 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 you know when i talk to them about what's god been doing in their life well i mean when i was 13 uh, you know, I was going to a youth group, and I, we went to this meeting, and they tell me about when they got saved. And you know what they're doing? They're living their life now, 20 years later, 30 years later, based on past grace. 
God was gracious to save them that day. And I'm not really arguing that point. But you know what? God didn't just save them in past tense. He is saving them. And he does have something for them tomorrow. And when he sends cancer into their, their family or into their personal life, when he, when he takes away the job and the, the main breadwinner doesn't have a job, when, when, when all these things happen to us, for whatever reason, the various trials that we experience in this life, it's an opportunity for God's future grace to work. And we need to set our hope fully in the future grace that will be revealed. I want to read a, a, a quote to you. This book I bought when well, I was in seminary, so it was like somewhere between 99 and 03. I bought this book, I remember from the seminary bookstore, and I think it was a f- pretty new at the time. And um, I read it, and I was like, I was struggling with some of the concepts. I, was, I liked some of the other ones, and, um, and some of the other ones were like, yeah, yeah, that's right on. I just picked the book back up, partly because we're cleaning out this room for, for construction. We're going to put some more classrooms back here and a restroom. But... <laughs> But I have, a box, I have a few boxes of books back here that i got to clean out of the, the room back here. And right on top was John Piper's Living by Faith and Future Grace. Picked the thing up, and I was like, it's like, it's fresher to me today. And so many of the things that I, I'd read back then, and I'd kind of applied some of the principles. I'm like, this is amazing. I just want to read a quote to you uh, that's actually in the introduction. He says, at the heart of future grace is that the promises of future grace are the keys to Christ-like Christian living. What Christian doesn't want the keys to Christ-like Christian living? In fact, when I'm sitting across the table with these people, like, how do I do that? They're looking for a magic pill. And, and he's saying, the promises of future grace, what God is going to provide for you, are the keys to Christ-like living. It's the hand that turns the key is faith. Your faith in what God's going to do. The life that results is called living by faith in future graves. By future, I do not merely mean the grace of heaven and the age to come. I mean the grace that begins now this very second and sustains your life to the end of this paragraph. By grace, I do not merely mean the pardon of God in passing over your sins, but also the power and beauty of God to keep you from sinning. By faith, I do not merely mean the confidence that Jesus died for your sins, but also the confidence that God will also with him freely give us all things, Romans 8, 32. Faith is primarily future-oriented. Assurances of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11, verse 1. It is the essence of the, it, its essence is the deep satisfaction with all that God promises to be for us in Jesus, beginning now. And honestly, I've not heard that preached much throughout the course of my whole life. Most of my life was, look at what Jesus did for you. And, I'm, and, and he's not downplaying that. I'm not downplaying. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. That's an amazing thing. But you know, Jesus is not done with you. And the future grace that Peter's telling us to set our hope fully in, trusting fully in, is the grace that we'll get tomorrow, the grace that we'll get the day after that, the grace that we'll get the day after that, the rest of our life. And so no matter what trials, what struggles we go through, it's holding on to and trusting fully in the grace of God that will be revealed and ultimately will be revealed 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As our faith is set fully in future grace, I want you to think about future grace as how much greater God is than anything in the world. It's as we set our faith in that, that we then obey God. It's like I realize that God is bigger than what I have to do today. God is bigger than the problems of my life. And it, it's that that leads me to not conforming to the passions of our former ignorance. Look at verse 14. As obedient children. So how's that happening? By setting our faith in future grace. Not being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so Peter here is, again, quoting from a other place in Scripture. The effects of our hope and our faith in future grace is this. I obey and I think of the greater battle than my selfless passions and desires. When my eyes are on how great God is, I'm not as concerned about how great I want to be in my selfishness. When I'm concerned with how amazing God is and how he's going to provide for me, I don't have to worry about being in control and solving the problems of my life. I can release control to the sovereign God. I don't have to be sovereign over my life. When, when I'm setting my faith in future grace that God is bigger than what I'm dealing with, I don't have to run away and escape and try to find a... I, I, I don't have to say, I need another vacation. I just got back from vacation. I need a vacation. I can trust in God because God's going to lead me through this week. His future grace, in the same way that he's helped me in the past, he's going to help me in the future. It changes us from the inside out. It changes our desires when we set our faith and our hope in future grace. The second command in this passage is down in verse 17. And, and again, I'm using the commands in the, in the Greek text, uh, the imperative when, he's, when he brings out a command. And he starts this with a little conditional phrase. Uh, verse uh, 17, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Let's just stop right there. So it's conditional. He's a saying, again, he started this, this book by saying, I'm writing to the saints scattered throughout these regions, right? I'm, I'm writing to you. So he's writing to believers. In fact, I could just stop right now and say, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, nothing I'm saying right now applies to you right now with the caveat that you can trust in Jesus and you can come to know him and everything I'm saying applies to you. So he's starting off, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then, and here's the, here's the command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's the time of our exile? Our entire life, from birth until we die. Right? That's the time of our exile. And that's why, again, Peter's saying, I'm assuming you're preparing your minds, because you're in exile right now. You know that. You're not in control of this world. You, right? You know that. You, you cannot get enough people in government to make America you know, Christian. It's, 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 you were in exile. This is not our homeland. Our homeland is to come, and we need to set our faith fully in that homeland to come, in those things that God is going to do for us to carry us through the time of our exile. And so his command here is conduct yourselves with fear. That's pretty interesting. I want to talk to you guys about fearing God, not man, throughout the time of your life. 
Now, what's the difference between fearing God and fearing man? Well, fearing man, it's, it simply means this. I'm worried what people are going to think about me, whether it's my looks, my job performance, my skills, my abilities, my blank, blank, fill in the blank, whatever it is. When I'm worried what people think of me based on that, what kind of house I live in, how good's the landscaping or not, or what kind of car I drive, all these kind of things. And, and, and we could say there's nothing right or wrong about a house, nothing right or wrong about a car, but if I'm out polishing my car every day because I'm concerned what people think of me, then I would say there's something wrong with that. Now, you can go polish your car every day and do all that. That's fine. But what is the motivation for you doing that? And if I'm worried about what people think of me in my dress, in my job, in my car, you know, and, and I, I know very sweet people who drive the nicest cars and live in the smallest house, and they intentionally never have anybody over at their house. And the reason is because they want to appear, hey, I'm, 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 I'm doing well in this life. I'm doing really good in this life. I know other people who spend all their money in their home. They have a big, amazing home. And then when you walk in it, you know, they're house poor. They got the old furniture, and they got some rooms that are empty. There's no furniture. But they wanted the big house in the big neighborhood. And they're like, oh, yeah, we live in such, such subdivision. And they, they still might not invite you over to their house ever. As pastor, I got to sneak in, you know, like, oh, hey. Uh, but uh, and this was not here. I'm not talking about anybody in the room. But maybe that's you. I don't know. Uh, you see what I'm saying? When you're worried what people think about you, that's fear of man. That's what the Bible calls that. You're more afraid of man and what he thinks about you than you are of God and what he thinks about you. In fact, some people, you know, they act in such a way when they come through the doors into a church building. Now, this is just a building where the church is meeting today. But they think of this as, uh, I got a, you know, I love how uh, Anglin's always... I call him Anglin, but you, Pastor David Anglin. Uh, you know, he talks about carrying your Bible in the correct angle. So it's not, o- not only is my Bible here, but my Bible's right here over my heart. You know, so he, you know, and they're acting in such a way. Now, Monday through Saturday, they forgot about this book. But on Sunday, when they walk in this building, they're carrying it just right. You know, like they're an extra special good Christian. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, that, that's fear of man. That's, that's even doing a good thing, bringing a Bible to church, for the wrong reason. You see what I'm saying? So fear of man is not what Peter's challenging us to. He's saying you've got to conduct your time in exile fearing God, not man. And so it causes us to act one way at church, another way at work, another way when we go out with our old friends from high school or college, another way when we're with our kids, and a different way when it's just with our wife. It, 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 the fear of man impacts so many things when you're really concerned about what people think about you. And this really hits home with, with people who have uh, an idol in their life of approval. And I'm going to talk more about that as we close out today. But I think all of us, no matter what the deep heart idol is in your life, struggle with fear of man. We think about what, I mean, there was a thought of, well, I hope I do a good job today. I'm just preaching the word. And that was my pride saying, you need to do a good job. It really doesn't matter if I do a good job. What's really important is, does God speak to you from his word today? And I might stumble over my words. I might mess up a sentence. I might pronounce something wrong. And that's just going to hurt my pride. You know what? My pride needs to be hurt. It's okay. But what matters is, do you hear the word of God? 
And so I don't even want to approach the pulpit with fear of man issues. I want to be more concerned with what God says about this, that God is communicating truth from his word to you today. Fear of man, uh, I think I've talked about that to death, so I'll move on a little bit. Fearing God, what does that mean? Fearing God means I consider what God wants me to do with my life. So when I think about what am I going to major in in college, what kind of job I'm going to take, what kind of things I'm going to do, I really want to know what God has to say about that because my pride and my ego are really not important. I fear God, and I want to do what God wants me to do. I I feel like a lot of Christians have not included God in some of those big decisions, and here's why. I think they're afraid God's going to send them to Africa as a missionary. I really do. And, and I, I kind of laugh at that because if there's one place in the world I would love to live, it would be Africa. But anyway, that's beside the point. There's, it, God needs his people all over the world, including in East Tennessee, including in the job you have right now, including on the street that you live on right now. God needs you there. And he needs you to set your faith and f- hope fully on Christ and his future grace right where you live, right where you work. Fearing God means I consider what God wants me to do with my day-to-day. Okay, this is your day, God. This is a future grace that you've allowed me because you could have killed me in the night. I mean, you could have done it. Fearing God means I'm literally afraid of God. And I know in Sunday school they didn't say that. It was like, it's a reverence. And I agree with that. It is a reverence for God. But it's partly a reverence for God because that guy created everything. And one day he's going he's gonna to just destroy it all. And he's going to, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to wipe the, uh, the tongue out, you know, the sword tongue, all that stuff. I mean, he's that amazing. And his wrath is real. His wrath has been poured out, and we have examples of that in Old Testament. And his wrath will be poured out. We have examples of that, prophecies about that in Revelation and whatnot. He really should be, you should be scared of him. Okay? I really believe that fear of God does not just mean I revere him or I stand in awe of him. It includes that. But you know one reason why I stand in awe of God? is because he could strike me dead right now. And I really believe that. He could strike me dead if he wanted to. And I know people who have just like, how'd that guy have a heart attack? He's like the picture of health. How'd that guy, what happened with that? It just, and then this horrible, horrible car accident, you know, and they were just driving along and somebody just T-boned them and they're gone. And I don't, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I, my faith is fully in the future grace of God. And if he takes my life, I know that he's going to take for, care of my family. I trust in him. He's a faithful God. He loves us. And not because I deserve it, but because he made a way for us. He's given me his righteousness. So fearing God in the time of your exile means fearing him above man. God is so much more to be feared. Like, what does God think about what you do with your life? What does God think about what you do in your free time? What does God think about what you do when you're at work and nobody from church is around? What does God think about what you do when you're with your family? That's what fearing God is. And in those moments, yes, you should stand in awe of him. You should fear what he thinks about you. I revere God because he's worthy of it. He could kill me or he could lift me up. He can do whatever he wants with me. Why? Because he's God and I'm not. God can do whatever he wants with you. So there's been two commands in this passage. First one in 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. 
the revelation of Jesus. And then in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Look at what he, as he kind of flows from that, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited from your fathers. It's futile if you fear man instead of God. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, verse 19, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Again, our belief is because of him, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, and here's the result, so that your faith and hope are in God. We don't conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile so we can earn points with God. We don't, we don't do that and you're like, well, I'm a, you know, I carry my Bible the right way. It, no, no, no. We conduct ourselves with fear because he's fearable. He is that amazing. And the effects of, of, it, of what he's done through dying on the cross, paying the price for our sin, shedding his blood that had to be shed so that God could be a righteous judge. So, as I wrap this up, I want to I wanna ask you to think about this. What am I supposed to do with this knowledge that you have shared with us today? And the answer, the answer to the, the, the guy or the lady sitting across from the table from me who's saying, what do I need to do? I really want to grow. And the answer is surrender your all so that your faith and hope are in God. And we can even finish that sentence with not in yourself, not in your abilities, not in your actions, not in anything that has anything to do with anything of this world. Set your faith and hope in God. Surrender to the one thing that's from outside of this world that created the world we live in, and that is God. Now, moralism is going to tell you, based on this passage, hey, uh, you, you need to trust God, and you need to live a holy life. I mean, God's holy, I'm holy, and so you should be holy. And the reason why moralism will tell us that is because we need to pay back God. They really feel like God's got to be paid back. And one of the really freeing things that I, I learned 16 years ago, or whenever I first read Living by Faith and Future Grace, is that you, I knew it, but I needed to read it. And he really hammered this home at the beginning of the book. You can't pay God back. You can't live good enough to pay God back. And so moralism really falls down, and it's not a true gospel that says, hey, trust hard in God, work hard for God, live a holy life for God, make a to-do list, and if you just live by this to-do list, you're going to grow spiritually. That's not the gospel. That's what moralism says. And there's an element of pride in that. Like, I got up every day this week, and I read my Bible. I'm so good. And I, now I expect God to do something for me because I did something for him. I mean, I'm a good Christian, right? And that's not, what, that's not what I'm saying to you at all. That's what moralism would tell you. The gospel says, and I really want to preach the good news of the gospel to you, is you know we live in a fallen and messed up world. It's hard. There's not many people friendly to Jesus followers. Because of that, I know and I'm kind of restating this whole passage. I know your mind, your, you are preparing your minds for action because we live in a fallen world. And I know you recognize that your minds are to be free from any allurement of this world. So therefore, the good news I want you to know is that in your time on this earth, 
fully trust in our amazing God who is able to do more than you could ask or think. Find your hope in the fact that no matter how long you live, he will return. And as his children, follow after him because he will never lead you astray. Also, I want you guys to know this. If you consider him to be your heavenly father, live your life in the fear of the Lord, the creator and sustainer of life, the one who judges impartially. You know, he bought you. You don't belong to yourself anymore. He bought you with the price of his blood. And it was God's plan A from before the foundation of the world. And now we can see it clearly looking back, all these prophecies that that led to a coming Messiah. He has come, Jesus. And he didn't do that so you would pay him back. No, he did that so that your hope and your peace and your joy and everything that's important would be found in him. And he wants you to surrender your desires, your passions, your loves, and trust in him because there's nowhere else better to trust in this world. That's the gospel message from this passage. And that's good news. God is that good, and God is that involved in our lives. So my my challenge to you guys is surrender to him daily. And I've met with many Christians who are like, oh, no, no, I did that back then. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not talking about about the past. I'm talking about the future grace. I'm talking about today. Can you surrender your all to him today? Can you surrender your all to him tomorrow? When he pulls the rug out from under you, can you, instead of blaming him, could you just trust in him that he knows that that rug needed to get pulled out from under you? That he actually has a plan, and and he's not messed up in his plan. He knows what he's doing. Can you trust in God? Can you surrender your all to him? And as I conclude, I want to talk about four things that, that really tend to hold us back from surrendering our all. And these are, I, I just, you know, I I've constantly am finding idols of the heart. And um, was it Martin Luther that said, or, or Calvin that said, our heart is a factory of idols. You give ourselves an, enough time, we're going to create another idol in our heart. We'll find another thing to worship, to trust in, to hope in, to enjoy other than Jesus. Just give, give yourself enough time. And uh, I was reading an author just recently. He talks about four source idols, he calls them. They're deep down in the heart that constantly wage war, that our heart is waging war with, are we going to worship God or are we going to do what we want to do? And so we could call all of these a selfish thing, right? They all fit under selfishness, but they kind of have a little different shade to them. And I just want to talk about these briefly. We're not going to dive into this. We'll be done in about five minutes. But I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself the question, what keeps me from surrendering to God daily? What is it that holds me back from just trusting in his future grace? One of them is comfort. And I've met a lot of people, their source idol is comfort. And I have to tell you, oftentimes that's my source idol. I, I, I don't stand here as the guy that doesn't do any of these. Comfort. There's many times when I would rather just take a day off than deal with the issues of the day. I'd rather, hey, let me just turn on the TV instead of opening my Bible and deal, dealing with something that's, you know, just landed in my lap. Whether it's job-related, family-related, personal-related. There's times when I just want to run from stresses. I want freedom 
Uh, I know some people that, <laughs> I don't even know how they afford it, but I think they've been at the beach every week this summer. And I don't know how they do life here because they've been, done life at so many beaches this summer. And I'm not saying that they're worshiping the idol of comfort, but I know if I had whatever money they got to do that, I would be so tempted to just go do that. Because I, I find it so easy to fall down at the, the idol of comfort. I just, want, I just want the stresses to go away. I just want uh, the expectations on my life to go away. In those moments, you say I'm very selfish, but I'm worshiping the idol of comfort instead of worshiping God who knows I need whatever stresses I'm enduring. And he's already got the answer to the stresses of my life. I need to take my eyes off of myself and trying to figure it out and run away from it. And I need to run after God and say, God, how are you going to get me through this? I don't even know how that is, but I'm trusting in you. For others, it's the idol of approval. And often approval shows his face in fear of man issues. The idol of approval, I'm, I'm seeking affirmation from others instead of the affirmation from God. And so I'm going to dress in such a way or I'm going to act such a way when I go to work so I'm like on the in crowd at work or I, I get the raise at work or so I get the this from my family or I get this from my neighborhood. And, and I'm always looking for the approval of man. And don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't do a good job. I'm just saying don't do a good job so you get the pats on the back. There's a difference there. It's the motivation of the heart because I can go and do the right thing so that people are like, oh, good job, Dave, good job, you're, you're awesome. And I'm like, in that moment, I'm worshiping the idol of approval instead of worshiping a great and awesome God and realizing that, you know, whatever good I just did is because God was doing it through me. It's because I was getting out of the way and I was letting God. The third idol is the idol of control. I often see this in, in, in folks. Sometimes it affects me, but idol control is, is it can kind of pop out in different ways. Sometimes it's like self-disciplined. Like, oh no, I have to do this because I'm going to do this every day at this time and this is how it's going to work. Other times it, it, it pops out in a certainty. It's like, I have to be in control of my schedule because I need to know exactly when I'm going to do exactly what I'm going to do. And if I don't know when I'm going to do something, then I'm not going to do it until I know when I'm going to do it because it's got to fit. It's got to be certain. It's got, I'm going to wake up at this time and I'm going to do this thing. And, I'm gonna do, and then my life is going to be good because I'm in control. And that's an idol because you know who's in control? It's God. It's not you. And often when you worship this idol of control, you're... Your worst days are the days when you are slammed in the side of the face with the fact that you're not in control. And it gets out of control. And you're like, oh, what, what am I going to do with life? And I'm like, hey, can you trust God? God knew this was going to happen. So what? Your schedule got messed up for a day. I understand you like your schedule a certain way. I, understand, I like my schedule a certain way too. But God's in control. You're not. You are not sovereign over the world. He is. And the last idol is power. This, this shows his face in, I, I want success, I want to win, or I want influence in other people's lives. I want power over you. And so I'm going to do what I need to do so that I'm in a position to tell you what to do. I'm going to do what I need to do so that I'm, I'm up on the podium, I'm in first place, and you guys are all, good job, Dave, good job. And so the idol of comfort, the idol of approval, the idol of control, and the idol of power are four Heart idols, source idols that are, for me, are the key to the reason why I don't just trust in God every day. 
And when I talk to people about, why don't you just trust God's going to take care of this? Their answer is, but I don't know how he's going to do that. You know what that is? That's the idol control rearing its ugly head. They want to know how God's going to do that. What is God going to do exactly? When is God going to do it? It's the idol control. And when I say, hey, can you just trust in God? And as you deal with the stresses of the day, just trust in him, rely on his power. They're like, but I just want to get away from it all. That's the idol of comfort. And so you see how these idols prevent us from doing what God's asked us to do. Put your faith and your hope fully in the future grace of God. So as we conclude today, I just want to challenge you. What is the idol that you may be that may hold you back from surrendering your all to God? Maybe it's not one of these four. I'm not saying they're all there. I'm just saying these are really source idols that rear their ugly head in a lot of different ways. But can you repent of worshiping a false idol? Even if it was just deep in your heart and nobody knew about it. And can you trust fully in the future grace of God? The grace that will be revealed today as you deal with whatever happens today. The grace will be revealed tomorrow, whatever you have to deal with tomorrow. The grace that you'll, have to, that, that you'll need to deal with this year. With the rest of your life, the rest of your exile. As we're not in our homeland yet. And that's my challenge for you guys today. I just want you to be able to take this time as the band comes and and leads us in a a final song. We'll take the offering. But I want to say, if you need to just bow your heads, if you just need to close your eyes right where you're at, if you need to sit in your seat, whatever you need to do, and just talk to God right now. Because this is your time to just deal with what He wants you to do. And really contemplate, God, is there an idol of my heart that I've been worshiping more than I've been worshiping you? And that's where we get from confessional faith, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, oh, I believe he's sovereign, to functional faith, where I leave here and I actually do believe that God is sovereign and God is in control and I can trust in God. And that's functional faith. And that's the faith in future grace. Father God, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that Peter lays out before us. Jesus, I, I, I thank you for for the past, for paying the price for our sin, for making a way for us, for giving us your righteousness. But Lord, I thank you for the future grace that will be revealed. I thank you for what you're going to do in us and through us, and not for our glory, but for yours alone, Lord. And it's in your name that I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.